Be seated. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. Now this Lord's Day we return to the book of Revelation. Its theme is the victory of Christ and of his church over the dragon and his helpers. Derek Thomas in his uh, short commentary uh, on Revelation says, The message is about a great throne, a lamb who is actually a lion, and a fearsome foe who always threatens more than he can deliver, and whose doom is certain. Now there are obviously more than one theme in this book. That's the central theme. The Reformation Heritage Study Bible, which I would recommend you use, particularly in family worship, but very helpful in the introductions to the various books of the Bible, says this regarding Revelation. The message of Revelation is rich and complex, but we may summarize it with four key words that appear through the book. Throne, Lamb, Testimony, and Overcome. Representing the themes of Kingdom, Christ, Gospel Proclamation, and perseverance. I believe there are three additional threads or themes that run through this book. One is the prayers of the saints. Very often we see that what goes on on the earth is a response, an answer of God to what His people have prayed in this book. We also, I think, have to pick up the theme of the praise songs of this book. The people of God are routinely praising God in song in this book, and those songs kind of bind together the visions of the book. And lastly, seventhly, we have the theme of blessing or benediction. In this book, we have seven benedictions. We've seen one in chapter 1, verse 3, the last time we looked at the book. But there are six more coming uh, in this second portion of the book. Even the last verse, the benediction uh, that I will use at the close of this sermon and service. As I mentioned before, the book divides into two sections. The first section is the conflict between the church and the world in chapters 1 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through the following, we have the conflict between Satan and Uh, and Christ, the Messiah. In the conflict between the church and the world, we've seen already in uh, chapters 1 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor. It's about that seven churches, those seven churches in that time. Chapters 2 and 3 are not about seven ages of the world. There were about seven churches in Asia Minor. There were a lot more at that time than seven in Asia Minor. But it's showing the completeness, and we see Jesus commending and correcting those churches. And those kind of problems and those kind of good aspects of the church 
exists within churches throughout the centuries, right? But we're not one church. We can't say, oh, I'm the, we're the Philadelphian church or we're the Laodicean church. Not the way it is. But then we have the seven seals of persecution in seven, uh, four, six, uh, excuse me, four, five, six, seven. Then we have the seven trumpets in eight through eleven. And if you notice, just let's look briefly at eleven, eighteen, and nineteen. Just read verse 19. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunders and an earthquake and great hail. What we see in this verse is this is the end. Heaven's been opened up to God's people. This word here uh, in the Greek that's translated temple by the King James could and probably should be translated sanctuary. It's the word that refers to the holy place and the most holy place, not the whole temple itself. And so clearly in the context, when we see the Ark of the Testament, that's in the Holy of Holies. God's people come into His very special, special, special presence. And we see Christ as He really is at that point. So then in chapter 12, 1, we kind of come back to the beginning again of this New Testament epic. And we come now in 12 and following to see the conflict, as I said, between Christ and the devil. In 12 through 14 in particular, we're going to see three enemies of God. We're going to see the dragon or Satan himself and two beasts. The beast that comes from the earth and the beast that comes from the sea. We're going to see the false trinity, so to speak, waging war against God's people. We'll see through this section and the next section four great enemies of the church. The dragon, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, and then Babylon the whore. And then we'll see all four of them destroyed in reverse order. They'll all be presented, and then they'll all be defeated. We'll also notice two kind of secondary enemies besides these four great enemies. We'll see the stars or the fallen angels, and we'll also see men who have the mark of the beast. Six great enemies of the church. Now, let's read chapter 12. Let's listen to chapter 12, and let's note first in verses 1 through 6, the woman or the church giving birth to a child, to Christ. Then in 7 through 12a, we'll see the war in heaven, and then we'll see the protection and persecution of God's people in 12b through 17. Let us hear God's word. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven 
and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her children as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God night and day. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that it hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. The dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. A lot there. So let's get started. The church giving birth. Verses 1 through 6. The first thing we have is the woman giving birth here in verses 1 and 2. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and a moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child, travailed in birth, and pained to be delivered. Here we have this great wonder in heaven, something reminiscent of Joseph's dream in Genesis 37 where the children of Israel are pictured as 12 stars, the 12 tribes. We have many other sections of Scripture that speak similarly of this in Isaiah 50, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 60, Hosea 2, 
But we see even Paul referring to the church uh, as a woman uh, in Ephesians 5, in that beautiful passage which we often preach uh, at wedding services regarding the duties of husbands to wives. But if you remember in that section, Paul says, who I kind of got carried away, I've been talking about Christ and the church. The church is often pictured as a woman uh, in Scripture. But notice that this Old Testament church is clothed. In other words, the saints of old were clothed with the righteousness of Christ as well as us. Salvation was a gift to them. Our dispensational brethren are mistaken to think that people were once saved by keeping the law. It's always been through faith in the Messiah, whether it was the Messiah to come or it's the Messiah that has come. This, these few verses reminds me of Song of Songs, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. There we have the groom, Christ, speaking thus of the church. Who is she that looketh forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. It's a beautiful picture of the Old Testament church. But she pains to give forth the child, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we have her portrayed, this first great wonder. Then we have the second great wonder in verses 3 and 4, the great red dragon. His redness likely refers to the blood of the martyrs that's been spilt. It's already been referred to in 6, 9, and 10, and will be referred to again in chapter 17, 6. He has seven heads, probably referring to wisdom. He has ten horns, referring to power. He has seven crowns, likely referring to authority manifested in earthly, bestial kingdoms, like we see in Psalm 2, like we just sung of, and like we see reference to four great kingdoms that would arise between the time of Daniel and the coming of Messiah 490 years later. So there's clearly here some imagery, some Daniel 8 imagery, uh, imagery that's referring approximately at that time to Antiochus Epiphanes, who would be the great enemy of God's people, the Syrian king, uh, during the time of the intertestamental period between Malachi uh, and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in these verses we see a third of the angels falling. Um, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we read of stars falling, uh, in those prophecies, um, the proximate prophecy is regarding the kings of Babylon and Tyre, uh, but many theologians believe that this is also a reference in those two uh, to the fallen angels, those that fell with Satan in the fall that happened before the fall of Genesis 2. Right? There obviously was a fall uh, in the heavenly realms, in the unseen realms, Satan and his cohorts, now, before Satan has fallen, angel comes uh, and tempts Adam uh, and Eve. 
Certainly, uh, this fall of, uh, of uh, Satan and his uh, cohorts is referred to in Job 38, which you'll see before too long in your readings. 1 Peter 2.4 makes that reference, uh, and Jude 6. Clearly, this dragon is seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. It's been set out that that would be the case in Genesis 3.15. Can you think of some examples uh, in biblical history where it was very evident that Satan in the unseen world was seeking to cut off the lineage to the seed, to Jesus himself? How about Cain? How about Pharaoh? How about Saul? How about Haman? How about Esther? I mean, in Esther, Haman and Esther. How about Herod? Predominantly, right, in Matthew 2. There's another one that came to mind in in my thoughts. Athaliah. You fathers, go look up 2 Kings 11, 1 and following, and see how this wicked queen, Athaliah, sought to cut off the seed as well. That's always been Satan's desire. And he's been thwarted at every turn. So we see the woman protected in 5 and 6. She she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Did that sound familiar to what we just sung in Psalm 2? And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. In half a verse... In Revelation, we have the incarnation, the life, the ministry, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, coronation, and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. In just that phrase. He's caught up to rule. He's come unto his own. His own didn't receive him predominantly, as John says in John 1. But he's come to rule. He's come to break, literally. And that word could be translated shepherd or to rule. But he's been caught up. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended. And then he's been coronated in heaven. And then he sits at the right hand of God. Remember that coronation is sung. uh, We sing of that coronation at the end of Psalm 24. When we sing of God opening his gates... Lift up your gates. It's speaking of Christ coming in to the courts of heaven at his ascension. But notice she's protected by God for 42 months. Are we to take this literally? 42 months? Yes. but not woodenly literal. What's that mean? Well, when we interpret literature literally, we interpret it in light of what kind of literature or genre it is. This is apocalyptic literature, so we can say we're interpreting 42 months literally and not say it is exactly 42 months on the calendar. Does anybody remember something 
in Old Testament history that was 42 months, that was three and a half years? How long did the Lord protect Elijah? As we read of in Luke 4.25 and James 5.17. Exactly 42 months or three and a half years. 1,420 days or a time and times and half a time. Three different ways this period's expressed. But it's speaking of the New Testament period. A time where God's protecting us like he protected Elijah. It also happens to be, uh, we see this in Daniel 7.25 and 12.7. It's also the same period of time where Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple in the Holy of Holies. So this period has been spoken of before. Now it's a little bit clearer. We're in this period. In Christian education, we've been talking about the Christian life being a journey. And that journey's difficult. It's a dangerous journey. There's a war. There's temptations. There's dangers to the right and dangers to the left. There's places we can stumble on the way. There's people that come and try to divert us on other paths, bypaths. All that is set in this massive context that we have in Revelation. We're the remnant of the, of the Lamb, but there is still a wicked enemy who's been cast down from heaven, and he is angry. And he knows he's defeated, but he is at war with us. So we now come to a war in heaven in verses 7 uh, through 12a. We first see Satan and his demons cast out in 7 through 9. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, And Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So first we see Michael. Is this Christ? Now clearly Michael in the rest of Scripture is not routinely referred to as Christ. Certainly not in Daniel 10.13 or Daniel 10.21 or Daniel 12.1. Some think this may be a reference to Christ. I think not. But clearly he's a chief angel. And the victory is not Michael's. The victory is through Christ's finished work on the cross. It's only in that power that Michael has power to, to cast Satan down. Remember, we kind of have a reference to this in Ephesians 4, 8, where we see Jesus taking captive captivity. We see it again, I think, more clearly in Colossians 2, 15. Do you remember that, where it says, Christ spoiled principalities and power, triumphing over them? That's what pictures is pictured here in apocalyptic, metaphoric picture language, right? This is a picture book. John's seeing pictures and he's writing it down under inspiration in words. 
We don't get to see the picture. We get to see the description of the picture. Remember, John could say in 1 John 3, 8, that Christ came that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's his purpose. That's what he's doing. That's what he's been doing. The victory's won. The mop-up operation is still going on. Just as the victory's been won in your own heart, believer, but the mop-up operation is still going on. Do you remember at the return of the 70? Remember Jesus first sent out the 12. He trained them for a while, and he said, now it's time for a little on-the-job training. We'll send you out by twos, come back. Now he's going to send out a little bigger group of his servants. He sends out 70. They come back. They're enamored with the powers that they had because of their union with Christ, that Christ's power through them. And remember Christ, he's going to say, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name's written in heaven. That's what's more important than what you see ministerially, your ministerial fruit. Because the fact is, it wasn't clear Jeremiah saw much fruit, but he was a faithful gospel minister. Gospel ministers can't worry about what the Lord's going to bless and what he's not. They've just got to preach his word faithfully. But at the return of the 70, Jesus said this, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. Now, did Satan already fall from heaven? Did he fall from heaven when the 70 went out, or did he fall from heaven at the crucifixion? When Michael cast him because of the work of Christ. I think clearly what we have in Luke 10 is what's called a prophetic present. It's looking to the future and it's saying it's already as good as done. Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. This is what's happening in my ministry. In my ministry here on earth, in my being taken up to heaven, that's what's happening. Satan is being cast out. Then in the following verses, you still have pictures of Satan being cast out, but we see, in a sense, a focus on the victory of Christ. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength. The word strength is the word in the Greek power, the word we get dynamite from, dynamis. And the kingdom of our God and the power. This word is not dynamis. This word is exousia which should be translated authority. Does Christ have power? Yes. Does he have authority? Yes. He's the messianic king. All authority has been given to him in heaven and in earth. That's why he's engaged, uh, as Pastor Gebby said in a recent sermon on Revelation 20, he's engaged in ransacking the kingdom of The dragon. That's what's happening in the gospel going forth. Why is that? For the accuser of the brethren has been cast down, which accused them before God day and night, just like he did Job. We we had a picture of that first chapter of Job, didn't we? And they overcame him, 
here's the they, is the brethren, overcame him by or because the blood of the Lamb and by or because the word of their testimony. What's the reason why we're overcomers through Christ? Redemption accomplished by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Redemption applied in giving us faith that's not our own. A testimony, a confession that Christ is Lord and that he's my Lord and that I've sinned against him and that he's made a way of escape. And it's not because they love their lot, not their lives unto death, but that is a consequence of Christ's finished work and his application of redemption. Remember in Hebrews we're told uh, that non-Christians fear death. They kind of have an inkling that the path they're on is leading to destruction. Some of us know that all too well, don't we? We remember being on a path, and every once in a while our convictions bothered us just enough to start being afraid that we were going somewhere we didn't want to go. And it wasn't always that first conviction that led us to Christ. But sometimes we had those convictions, and we feared what awaited us because we still had the image of God. It was defaced. Unbelievers, you wouldn't think they're always fearing death, and they're not always fearing death, but they're fearing death. Don't forget that. That's another good thing we could bring up in talking with those that know not Christ. What's going to happen when you die? Going to go out of existence? That used to frighten me to the wits when I and it seemed like it was always Lord's Day evenings which I didn't call them Lord's Days then but Sunday evenings when I was a kid and couldn't get to sleep I'd start thinking about what would it be like if I didn't exist anymore and it wasn't comforting that's a lot more comforting than eternal damnation but it still brought no comfort We're more than conquerors through Christ by the blood of the Lamb and through the application of redemption in granting us faith and repentance and giving us a testimony of that. And therefore, he says, Rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. All that's already in heaven rejoiced when Satan, the accuser of the brethren, was cast down to earth. And then it seems like there's a break in chapter 2. Uh, verse 12. Rejoice, ye that are in heavens. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Here in 12b through 17, we have the persecution of God's people and the protection of God's people, kind of interwoven. First verse 12b and 13 kind of focuses on the persecution. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the seed of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. You see, sometimes in sports, there can be a team that's down and out. 
it's the fourth quarter, maybe it's the third period in hockey, and it's very unlikely they're coming back. But they know they've come back from something like that before, and they're not giving up. But this is different for Satan. He doesn't really, he knows he's not going to win. But he's still so angry. He's going to do everything he can to a remnant that's warring against him. He's going to bite. He's going to pull hair. He's going to do everything he can to harm the remnant of the Lamb. And he is. And he is. His time is short, and he knows it. He's angry at his inevitable defeat. But he's presently persecuting the woman, which is us, and the remnant of her seed. That's us. He's our enemy. He's frustrated. He knows he's defeated, but he is angry. He's wroth. And then we see the protection of the church in verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle. Does that picture remind you of anything? God says he gave his people wings like eagles in Exodus 19.4. It's from great author of the past, from Oxford, Mr. Tolkien. Used this imagery, didn't he, in Lord of the Rings? Protected like a great eagle, taken out to the wilderness. God protected his people for 40 years in the wilderness. He proved them, he says, in Deuteronomy 8, 14 through 16, but he protected them as well. He was testing them and he was protecting them. His protection still allowed them to have a lot of pain. And his protection still involves a lot of pain for us. Sometimes persecution, sometimes a spanking for the sins that we have committed. Sometimes he's just pruning. He's just cutting off branches so we'll bear more fruit, like Job. Like he speaks of in John 15. He's protecting us, but he allows us to have pain for our good. That's what he's doing. It's in a wilderness. So there's the picture of Moses and the people of God in the wilderness. And how long again is it for? A time and times, one plus two and times, and half a time, half. One plus two plus a half is two and a half years, 42 months, 1,420 days. What's called the inter- adventual period, the period between Christ's his ascension and his return, this period of the inter-advents. That's the period that's being spoken of again here. But we have the persecution still. There's protection and there's persecution. And the serpent Cast out 
of his mouth water as of a flood after the woman, that she might cause that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood with the dragon cast out of his mouth. Can you remember some flood times? Did it look like there might be a flood upon the people of God when God parted the Red Sea? And that flood that could have destroyed them destroys their enemies? Could be a reference to this. Can you remember a time when the earth swallowed up some enemies of God's people and of the leaders, the legitimate leaders of God's people? When some false leaders rose up like Korah and Dathan and Abiram in number 16 and God opens the earth to swallow them up. In other words, God swallows up heresy. If it wasn't for God at work in the church through the Holy Spirit, do you think the church would still not be swallowed up by the heresies that have come along through the ages? Because some of them are pretty attractive to the carnal, sinful mind. But it's God that keeps His church pure. Does He try us through these things? Yes, indeed. Does He sometimes show true believers from false believers through these? Yes. Were there errors that could have swallowed up the churches to whom John is writing at this time. In chapters 2 and 3, we read of the Nicolaitan error that was pervasive in some of the churches. He also has to call down some woman Jezebel who thinks she's a prophet or is pretending to be a prophet and is also trying to justify her adultery and has come up with some kind of doctrine that would allow for fornication and adultery of all sorts. And yet God swallowed up by the power of the gospel, power of the Holy Spirit, those kind of errorists then. And he's still taking care of errorists today and keeping his true people from falling prey to errors that are damnable heresies. Praise be to God. We're still called to test the spirits, as John says in 1 John 4. But in 1 John 4, 1 and 5, he also reminds the people he's writing to, but you've overcome. You've got to test the spirits or test the teachers, but you have overcome. It's as good as done. Your church in general will make the wise decision regarding those teachers. So in closing, an application, four things. Let us be reminded that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman have been at war for quite a long time. He's an implacable, hostile foe. And we are engaged in a cosmic battle. Pastor Roy Mahan wrote a book a number of years ago, kind of a survey or a biblical theology, and he called it the cosmic battle. 
We're in a cosmic battle. It's not just in the seen world, it's in the unseen world as well. Second, Christ's work on the cross has led to Satan and his angels having been cast out of heaven to the earth. He's a defeated foe. The victory's been won. Third, Satan is bound to no longer deceive the nations. That explains the gospel going forth to the nations. Revelation 20, verse 2, we see Satan being bound as parallel to this. And Satan's power is within God's overarching purposes. You see that in Job 1 and 2, don't we? Luther used to call Satan, oftentimes, God's devil. He's God's devil. He was created by God. He's allowed to have what he has only by God's direction. We don't have some yin-yang religion where we're not, you know, the evil forces are equal to the forces of good. That's not the way it is. God is, or Satan is under God's control. God is in control of Satan. He's God's devil. Let us remember that. And fourthly, let us remember, Satan knows his time is short. If he knows it, we ought to know it. And let's not forget it. But Satan's engaged and he's enraged and his cohorts in him are warring against us. But, Remember verse 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. <clears throat> many of these visions, many of these potentially 49 pictures, or maybe somewhere between 40 and 49 pictures in this book, most of them are pretty scary. But there's a number of them that are so comforting and should flavor all the other ones that are scary. But sometimes we forget ones like this that have to be the anchor as we read through many of the others. Let me just mention two others. 4-1, the four horsemen. Horsemen two, three, and four. Whew, scary. But remember that first horseman. He's in white. He's got a crown. He's got a sword. He's going forth conquering. Don't ever forget that first horseman. Don't ever forget the angel or the messenger of chapter 14, 6, and 7. We'll get to him in a little bit. He goes forth proclaiming the everlasting gospel, saying, worship God. Summarizes the whole gospel in worship. Worship God. That's the gospel. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. It's just a synonym of worship God. That's what God's doing. Let's not forget it. St. Clair Ferguson, commenting on this passage, said this on 12.11. The only way to overcome the dragon is when Christ has all of you. And you have all of Christ. You are only safe 
when he has all of you, but oh, the glory when he has all of you. Because then you know you have all of him. Let me quote just a few lines of a fairly recent hymn entitled, In Christ Alone. I don't suspect I will ever recommend you singing a hymn like this in corporate worship as long as I am alive, but I will tell you that if you want to listen to this in your car going to work or going to the store, you will be edified. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through tempest, drought, and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears are stilled when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Let us pray.